The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. On today's programme, we're going to get a full preview and analysis of next week's elections with the politics guru, Professor John Curtis from Strathclyde University. Well, next Thursday, we'll see over 6,000 councillors across 200 local authorities elected in England, Wales and Scotland. The local elections are the biggest test of voter sentiment in 2022 in what has been a very turbulent start to the year. Well, the Labour Party are currently ahead in polls, whilst the Conservatives will be looking to minimise the fallout from Partygate. But of course, it's the soaring cost of living crisis that most concerns voters as inflation is at a three decade high. And don't forget, we have elections in Northern Ireland and they could see Sinn Féin become the largest party in the Stormont Assembly. Well, first, let's get a, uh, the latest on the week's other political news with Bloomberg Opinions' Therese Raphael. Therese, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, you have a piece out today uh, on the terminal and on the Bloomberg website on the war in Ukraine. It's entitled uh, Britain Ups the Ante on Putin. Biden should too. Now, this is after the uh, Foreign Secretary's uh, big speech on Wednesday, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So the Mansion House speeches, as you know, a set piece of the political calendar given by the Foreign Secretary uh, and uh, a couple months later by the, by the Chancellor. And it's closely watched uh, for signs of really the government's strategic direction. Her speech, Liz Truss's speech, was headlined the return of geopolitics. And she went through some of the arguments that we've heard from a number of Western leaders uh, regarding why Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is of such strategic importance to NATO, to democracies, to the international community. And, you know, so far, so sort of, you know, expected. But where she went further than uh, Joe Biden in the U.S. and other officials is where she basically defined what success should look like in Ukraine. So we heard Boris Johnson say from the very start, Putin must fail. Britain was at the forefront of and has been at the forefront for a while of arming Ukraine. Uh, It had been training uh, the Ukrainian military, uh, the humanitarian aid and all of that. But it's never been really clear what does failure, you know, what constitutes failure. And there's been an argument within democratic nations, particularly within Europe, you know, could a negotiated settlement be reached? Could he be allowed to retain parts of the Donbass? And what was, I think, striking about the Mansion House speech was Liz Truss coming out and saying that we will keep going, this is a quote, further and faster to push Russia out of the whole of Ukraine. Now, that doesn't just mean uh, the main area of 
fighting right now in the Donbass mm-hmm. that you know, presumably refers to Crimea, which is illegally annexed in 2014. That's further than the U.S. has gone. And that really, I think, bubbles to the surface this question of, um, you know, the escalation risk, the escalation trap, some would say, whereby fear of escalation has given Putin so much escalatory headroom that he's able to keep ramping up the pressure on Ukraine um, yeah. and making that victory, you know, more likely for Russia. But... Um I would question, is this um, a kind of global Britain message, which is quite typical of this Tory administration that we have in the UK at the moment? As you point out in your piece, Britain is a middling power. Um, You know, it's not as if we could achieve whatever that victory were ourselves. So, you know, what what is the kind of scepticism around what Truss is saying, I suppose? Yeah, precisely. So she's just speaking for what Britain would like to see and speaking to a domestic audience and, and, you know, sort of, um, uh, you you know, from her bully pulpit at Mansion House to an audience there, then, you know, really there's not much um, that Britain can do to kind of execute that, that, you know, this is a wish list. It's not really a declaration of intent that should really worry the Kremlin because Britain can't do much about it. So, you know, she talks about we will go further and farther, but who is we? Is it Britain? Is it is it the NATO alliance? And this is the key here, because trust can only do so much um, uh, uh, as as long as you know, she, she, she's dependent on the U.S., but also uh, Britain's European allies. Uh, Britain has lost some clout in Europe after Brexit. Uh, the Biden administration has its own constraints domestically, uh, but also a lot of skepticism from within U.S. Republicans about where exactly U.S. interests lie and how, you know, how far, how much risk to take in order to, you know, to to def- basically help Ukraine. The Biden administration position has been it would like to see uh, Ukraine free and independent. That doesn't say uh the scope of Ukrainian territory at the end of this war, it would like to see Russia weakened and it would like to see NATO strengthened. Mm-hmm. That's a very different sort of stance from what we've heard from trust. And so I think, you know, was she speaking, was this really um, a, a sort of global Britain flag waving, waving for a domestic audience or can she bring Biden along? I think she does make uh, a very good case for changing the strategic concept that's guided the way the West looks at the war in Ukraine, because that's sort of run its course. This escalation aversion has been has been to Putin's advantage. But how they change that concept, how they introduce, you know, what's called strategic ambiguity to the way we talk about um, pushback and, uh, and and helping Ukraine with its defense, um, you know, that has to be hashed out within NATO, mm. within the Western alliance. And we'll get some of that during the Madrid summit in June, I suspect. And, and, and Therese, just briefly, what about what you call the, the, the trapped rat theory? It's all very well Europe pushing uh, Ukraine to, to go further and reclaim more territory, arming it with all the arms we can send. I mean, most people, most countries in Europe are behind Ukraine. But what about the danger that uh, we push Putin into a corner and unleash something unpredictable? So the counter-argument to that, and that, and that, that risk um, absolutely is a real one, the counter-argument is that Putin is going there anyhow, because whenever Putin has gotten what he wants in any way, he's, he's pushed further. And we've seen that 
um, in Chechnya, we see it in Georgia and Abkhazia, we saw it in Crimea, in the Donbass, you know, all the way through. So Putin has no intention, he has no intention not to press his, his gains. And if he is able to consolidate territory in the Donbass, he will absolutely forward station Russian military and intelligence assets there, and it will absolutely be a threat to the Baltics, to Moldova, to NATO territory. And therefore, the trap is that in constantly, you know, we are uh, attributing to him uh, certain kind of risk-benefit uh, calculus that, 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 you know, we in the Western world find rational, but which don't really um, map on to the way he sees the goal of, of reestablishing a Russian empire and what's at stake now, because in his mind, he's already at war with NATO. Okay, so big food for thought then when it comes to Ukraine, uh, Britain's attitude. Yeah, can we shift the needle in terms of the thinking around how to confront Vladimir Putin? Really fascinating piece. But as I've got you on the programme this morning, Therese, (laughs) we also have to talk about what's going on in Westminster. This as a bevy of women in Westminster unleashing, you know, on uh, MPs, on men, effectively, uh, in politics in Britain, talking about boorish behaviour, sexual misconduct and harassment. This is unfortunately not new, but is this sort of a new peak pinnacle? Yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. I was thinking this morning, I was just sort of tallying up the, the list of, you know, what's being called Pestminster uh, scandals. You know, we have a, a sitting MP convicted of sexual assault and accused of bullying. There are, you know, there was a, you know, a female MP um, compared to in print to Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Further 50 MPs were play, you know, facing sexual misconduct complaints. Uh, and, and, and an MP alleged to have watched pornography in the Commons chamber. So it's um, it's it's quite mind-boggling. Uh, I think you know some of those who are trying to uh, you know on behalf of the uh, of the sitting government, which you know I think we can expect will receive some kind of a slapdown tied to this when it comes to the local elections, um, have said, well, you know, this is a broader problem in society. It's a wider. You know, it's a wider issue. It's not just Westminster. But I don't, I don't think that really goes very far, given that, you know, these are the people setting the laws for the country. They're meant to set an example. They're elected leaders. Um, so I'm not sure that that sort of argument will cut it with the public. And it really, you know, is up to Boris Johnson on the, on the government side. And, of course, there are allegations on the, on the Labour Party side that Keir Starmer will have to deal with as well. But it, it's going to be up to Boris Johnson to decide, you know, who who did what and um, lead out some pretty swift and, you know, harsh punishment, I think, um, if, if he's going to try to cauterize this. But I, I don't know, Caroline, I think, I think at this point we've yeah. now had such an accumulation of, you know, between party gate, between, you know, let's cast our minds back to the Owen Patterson mm-hmm. uh, uh, scandal. You know, this is really just built up to the point that I think in the public mind there's something wrong with the culture of Westminster. Just a few days now, of course, to the May local elections. What are the key results to watch for then in those votes? Nationally, the cost of living crisis is the top concern for voters. But after months of bad headlines for the government, how far will the electorate make their choice on national issues. Both the main parties will face challenges from the Liberal Democrats and the Greens and the SNP in Scotland, Plaid Cymru and Wales. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, let's get a preview now and some analysis with elections guru, Professor John Curtis from Strathclyde University. John, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, first up, could you just run us through exactly which areas uh, have elections and to what on Thursday? Well, let's start with the easy bits first. All of Scotland is having elections uh, for all of the seats on its 32 councils, although it's it uses a system of proportional representation, the single transferable vote, rather than the first-past-the-post system. Wales also has elections for all the seats on its 22 councils, um, though in its case it uses the, uh, the uh, plurality system. Um, in both cases, the last elections were held in 2017, just before the 2017 UK general election, in which Theresa May was hoping to get, but in the end failed to get, a overall majority. In Northern Ireland, which is probably the most important of the elections, there is an election for the Northern Ireland Assembly, again using a single transferable vote. That's the election for uh, the devolved government. Um, and again, the last election w- took place in 2017. In England, all of London has elections. All of the seats on the 32 London boroughs are, are having elections. But outside of London, the picture is much more complicated. Only some of England has elections, and for the most part, it's the more urban part of England. And moreover, of the 114 councils that do have elections, only in 14 of them are all of the seats actually being contested. Um, Elsewhere, typically, it's only one-third of the seats that are being contested, which inevitably means that the prospects of councils are changing hands in terms of one party having a majority rather than the other are quite limited because two-thirds of the seats are, are guaranteed to be unchanged. Okay. And here in England, the other crucial thing to understand yeah. is that the last elections were in 2018, not in 2017. OK, um, so this these local elections also are seen as perhaps the biggest test ahead of any potential general election. How much do you think voters are going to be voting then on the national issues? We know that people are worried about the costs of food and uh, energy and taxes going up. Labour are ahead in the polls. There's been the Partygate scandal, Ukraine. Are voters at a local level, though, going to be voting on those issues, do we think? To a fair degree, though, of course, not exclusively. Um, The broad answer to your question is that once you start looking at the votes in total across the country as a whole, then the overall popularity of the party's candidates will tend to vary in accordance with their their national standing. Now, there's, there's one clear exception to that. The Liberal Democrats, Britain's third, uh, principal third party, um, always do better in local elections than they do in national elections. So in recent local elections, they've been running at the equivalent of the high teens nationally, whereas they're only running at about 10% in the polls. But even in their case, if they go up or go down, again, whether they're going up or going down, will reflect whether they've gone, they've gone down the national polls. Uh, equally, the Greens tend to do rather better in local elections. 
But the relative strength of Conservative and Labour tends to follow the relative strength of Conservative and Labour in the polls. So if Conservative are ahead in the polls, then in the end, the Conservatives will tend to do relatively well in local elections. And if Labour are ahead of the polls, then Labour will tend to do relatively well. But of course, individual councils will vary. There's a lot of variation around that broad picture. Some people will vote for a local person they like. In a particular council, there will be arguments about the potholes or the roads or what, or the uh, educational services or whatever. Um, but once you start looking at the picture broadly, then you're going to get something that not an exact mirror, but certainly will reflect the popularity of the parties across the country as a whole. Now, John, just give us uh, some indications of the things we should be watching for on election night for the parties doing well and badly, because all parties like to like to spin election night, and it's quite difficult to, t- yeah. to tell with local elections, isn't it, wh- wh- when parties are doing well or badly. And a lot of this, of course, is to do with the comparables, and you mentioned that the elections before were 20, 2017 and 2018. Yeah, so... Let's take England, because it's England where most of the focus will be, and it is England where the picture is potentially misleading. So uh, a lot of commentary that these local elections will give voters the chance to say what they think about the current Conservative government, which for the first time in this parliament has been consistently behind in the polls basically since just before Christmas, not least because of the Partygate scandal, also because of the cost of living crisis. Um, However, these local elections are relatively unlikely to produce headlines that say Conservatives massacred, even if the fact that they are behind in the national polls is reflected in the local ballot. There are three reasons for this. The first is that the last elections were in 2018. In 2018, Conservative and Labour were roughly neck and neck in the polls. They were certainly roughly neck and neck in the local elections. Now, at the moment, the Conservatives are about six points behind, but that still only means about a 3% swing. So that will produce modest Conservative losses, modest Conservative uh, Labour gains, and the Democrats might also profit from the decline in Conservative support, but not massive losses, particularly because, B, these local elections are taking place disproportionately, in England at least, in Labour territory. London, you know, where all the seats are up for grabs, is now basically a one-party city. Of the 32 councils, Labour controlled 21. The Conservatives are only defending seven. Um, and And also then, meanwhile, out Side of London, as we said, in many places, only one third of the councils are, are, are up for grabs. Now, mm. even here, because it's more urban England, it's disproportionately Labour England. But even where the Conservatives are in control, because only one third of the seats are up for grabs, again, it's very difficult to find very many places where it is likely that the Conservatives are going to lose overall control of somewhere that they already have. So actually, the expectation that there might be headlines that says, you know, Boris, you know, disaster are unlikely to happen, even if, even if the uh, Conservatives do as badly as the polls suggest that that they might. Now, within all of that, there, there is certainly one council in particular that the Conservatives would love to hang on to, but where they may well struggle to do so. And that's Wandsworth, one of the councils in London that they currently control. It is highly marginal, and it has an iconic value for the Conservatives for two reasons. One is, it has a very low council tax, 
and it's been pursuing, uh, as a way, such a right strategy of low tax uh, 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 and uh, low, low services. And it's, and it's served the party well locally because it's managed to hang on to the borough ever since 1978, often against the tide, including in 1990, when successive Wandsworth, together with Westminster, helped for the time being at least, at least to save Margaret Thatcher's skin. So this has a certain resonance for mm-hmm. the Conservatives, and that's one they may well lose, but it may be one of only a handful that they lose. Okay, really, yeah, very fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, London, uh, in fact, the YouGov poll uh, just in the past few weeks gives Labour 50% uh, in terms of polling in London, so that's interesting. Yeah, but, but Labour, also, but, a word... But, 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 but Labour got you know, nearly 50% last time. Labour yeah. is a, London is a Labour city. Yeah, exactly, as you say. Um, but look, also interesting is Northern Ireland. I mean, this also is uh, interesting for our audience, I think, because of, of the implications around Brexit. Northern Ireland is holding a full election to its assembly at Stormont with potential important implications. What are you watching out for there? Well, the crucial thing that we're looking out for in Northern Ireland, although in some senses it's more symbolic than substantive but symbols matter in Northern Ireland is whether or not Sinn Féin managed to come first in the first preference vote and that for the first time um, ever since partition in 1922 uh, a unionist party fails to top the poll. Now the reason why this looks likely is not because Sinn Féin are making any great advance. Actually Sinn Féin were very close only very narrowly behind the DUP uh, back in 2017 but and they're basically expected to more or less hold their own, but no more than that. The reason, however, why they might come first is that the DUP, uh, the party was in favour of Brexit, that brought back Theresa May's government and helped it to deliver Brexit, but which in the end then found that when we got to Boris Johnson's version of uh, Brexit, that meant there was the Northern Ireland Protocol, and the Northern Ireland Protocol has deeply upset the DUP and a section, but not all of the unionist community, because it means that there are checks on some things that move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, because it keeps Northern Ireland in the EU single market. Now, the DUP's problem is that, whereas the nationalist community is pretty much united on this subject, A, most of the nationalists voted to remain in the first place, and B, they want to keep the Northern Ireland Protocol because they want to remain inside the EU single market, and... um, Yes, they might think the Northern Ireland Protocol needs a bit of tweaking, but basically, in principle, it's fine. Yes, yes. Unionists, however, are divided. The majority voted for leave, and a majority think the Northern Ireland Protocol is a bad idea. But there's a substantial minority who voted remain. There's a minority who aren't so upset about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm -hmm. So the DUP finds itself caught between, on the one hand, losing votes to an even harder unionist party, the traditional unionists over the Northern Ireland Protocol, but also losing softer unionists to the Northern Ireland Alliance, the non-aligned party, which looks as though it may well come third for the first time. John, so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. It's always great to have your insights. Professor John Curtis from Strathclyde University. So looking ahead to the local elections in all four nations and regions in the next week. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.